Welcome to Unspoken, the podcast that highlights experiences that are all too common but very rarely discussed. I am Dr. Cloda Campbell, the wellness psychologist, and I feel very passionately about speaking the unspoken to remove the taboo and shame that so often surrounds our experiences and internal worlds. For each episode of Unspoken, I am joined by someone who would like to uncover their unspoken with us in order to help themselves, but also in order to help others. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode and that you take something from it. Today's podcast is very proudly sponsored by my absolute favourite Irish skincare brand, Ella and Joe Cosmetics. With formulas that are powered by plants and backed by science, Ella and Joe are dedicated to creating high quality, luxurious skincare products that actually deliver results and that create magic moments in your day. Whether your skin is dry, dull, or just in need of a pick-me-up, the Ella and Joe range will put the joy back into your skincare routine. Find your skin confidence again by shopping Ella and Joe's beautiful products on ellaandjoe.ie using discount code UNSPOKEN for 15% off. Today I'm joined by Glenn, who has very bravely agreed to share his Unspoken with us. Glenn joins me to speak about a topic I have wanted to cover from the very beginning. Having had the privilege of working with men who found themselves living on the street and hearing their poignantly sad but beautiful stories, I knew in my heart that this was a topic we absolutely had to cover and to raise awareness of. I couldn't have wished for a more wonderful guest than Glenn to support me with this. You will find his story incredibly moving, inspiring, and it will leave you with so much hope in your heart. Today's conversation is a very special listen. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Glenn, welcome to Unspoken. Um, Thank you very much for inviting me, Claudia. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you here. I have waited for a long time to have a conversation about homelessness and the path that can lead to living on the streets. So for you to be so willing to talk about that with me, I'm very grateful to help us to understand what has led you to where you are now. Yeah. Can we go right back to the beginning? Life was great like okay my father didn't work for a lot of you know for a lot of the time because 1960s Ireland there was no work you had to go across on the cattle boat there was no airplanes <laughs> you went on the cattle boat and you stood for most of the journey over the way to Liverpool Manchester London to get work on building sites so my dad never worked but if if you're if, if if you've nothing but poverty, if, you, if you've lived in poverty, you don't know any different. So I remember Air Force Christmas that I can remember, me and Maureen and the other, Carol and Greg weren't born at that stage. But we, were, we weren't long left Chancery Lane. So we, we all lived in a tenement house in Chancery Lane. And it was one of the most infectious houses uh, and I don't mean that in the sense of a pandemic. Uh, I mean, it was there was laughter, there was gaiety. My father could play multiple instruments. He was he could make my mother's phrase was, "Your dad can make the accordion talk, wow. but he can't play the spoons or the drum like me." <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, everybody in the house got 
musical talent. I didn't get any of that. I didn't get the the instruments. I have a guitar and I I, I can't even play it. So this house was just a magnificent house. It was a big old tenement. The toilet was in the yard. There was a water pump in the yard. This is 1950s Ireland. The electrification of the country was only 20 years old. So it's a country that the London Times sent a a reporter over to Ireland in the 60s, early 60s. And he looked at all the tenements and he said, uh, Dublin of the 1960s is equivalent to London in the Victorian era. Wow. And that's actually true. Mm -hmm. And so because, as I said, we didn't know we were poor, this was life. Everybody laughed and sang at the weekend. Bottles of stout were all over the place. And uh, so they had a fondness for the drink, mom and dad. Mom could leave her aside from Monday till the weekend and do our stuff. My dad was a little bit wayward in that. When he'd get a job, he'd work really hard. But then he'd come and he'd spend it, you know, his money in the pub and it should have been gone on us. Uh, so that was the beginning. We moved from there to Dolphin House. Big blocks of flats, great camaraderie, great people. So... I left a beautiful camaraderie and we rebuilt that camaraderie in the flats. And so we had great crack and mum sold flowers. And when my dad left to get work in England, he forgot us. He forgot we existed. He got drunk all the time and he, he worked the rest of the time to get drunk at the, the next weekend. So mum went back out selling flowers with me. But I'd been out selling flowers with her before when I was about five and it was great. So here I was going back out again, and I was seven, and I loved it. So that taught me, like, nothing will teach you quicker than experience. Mm -hmm. My mother used to say, now, this is what you do. Uh, You stand away from me at St. Anne's Church, Crossroad, right, in Dawson Street. And we'd stand across there, and mum was a, a street flower seller, so she had a big pram. And we had all the flowers that we got on credit in the in the fruit and vegetable market over at Cable Street. What kind of flowers would you have? Um, well, depending on the seasons. Yeah. So all through the seasons, in the spring, we, we sold daffs, daffodils. And uh, in the um, in the summer, we sold all the, the big uh, azaleas and uh, dahlias and gladioli and all of them. And then... In around August, um, we we sold carnations at the horse show. And then coming towards uh, Christmas, uh, we'd sell pot mums. So they'd be hyacinth pots that were grown in greenhouses. And we'd sell them. And uh, the perfume from them was gorgeous. And I could still smell it. And then at Christmas, we'd move up to the mansion house. And the choir would be singing outside just across the road there. And uh, I'd stamp my feet in time to the band to get my feet warm so they didn't go numb. And my mum would give me a little basket to sell uh, mistletoe at sixpence a spray of the mistletoe. So if a lady bought some off me and it came to two and sixpence, you probably wouldn't know what two and six is. But if she gave me two and six out of a pound, she gave me a pound and it was two and six, I had to give her 18 and six change. And I was able to do it in my head. When I was in school and the teacher would say to me, say you're four times tables, you're five times tables, you're six times tables, I'd, I'd freeze. I wouldn't know anyway. But yeah, I could. If someone said to me, well, how much is £20 for a year? I'd say £1,000. And I'd be able to do it just 
really quickly, but I couldn't do it in class because if you didn't answer, I remember I didn't answer him one time and he punched me in the back of the head and my nose was broken off the, off the desk. And uh, that was just because I couldn't, I couldn't write. I, I was trying to write and I was going up the page like that. And I, so I put my head down closer to it to try and write. So I couldn't, I just couldn't function in a classroom. <laughs> uh, so I learned to trade from my mother. When I was about seven years of age, mum got sick and we were up at the Shelburne, just up on the corner. And I was, as usual, daydreaming. I always looked up at the sky, always. And so I'd be there calling cheap flowers or whatever I was selling. And I remember it was it was winter because we were freezing and it was raining. I was calling cheap flowers, but I was looking at the wind and the leaves and I just got distracted and I heard a commotion. And when I looked down, I, I was standing at the Statue of Isis. And when I looked down past the, statue, past the door of the Shelburne, there was a crowd. And I, I said, that's where my mum is. And I just started shouting, mum. And I ran towards her, you know, and I pushed through the crowd. And there was a gentleman there holding her and she, was, she had collapsed. And an ambulance came and, and took her. But in the meantime, this lady and gentleman come over to me and they said the fateful words we're from the nspcc and you have to come with us uh, tell us where you live tell us where your sisters are and your brothers so they brought us in a car over to dolphin house and of course there was pandemonium in the house because nobody knew what was happening and the next thing we knew we were in golden bridge standing before this nun and we couldn't talk because you're standing there and she's she was writing something. And I went, Maureen went to whisper something to me and I just knew we shouldn't say anything. So I just said, shh. And she looked up and she said, be quiet. And so we, we stayed quiet. And then she put her pen down. She rang a bell and a girl about 14 came in and she said, um, take him and her. I said, my name is Glenn. That's Maureen. That's Carol. And Gregory was already at being taken to the mother and baby home. We didn't know where he was going. So they brought him out to, uh, Dun- I think it was out, uh, past Dundrum, out that direction. How old was he? He was only six months. Oh, my God. And so they brought him straight away. He was gone. Maureen was up in arms. She was hysterical because she was responsible for him. You know, he was a baby, but she was responsible. How old was Maureen? Maureen um, is two years older than me, so she was nine. You were seven, and then Carol? Carol was about uh, five, and so Gregory was only six months. And you were standing in Golden Bridge, which was an industrial We were standing in Golden Bridge, which is up in in Inchicore, and uh, we were just, all we knew was the car pulled up, we went up the stairs, we were brought into this office. Uh, There was no conversation between the nun and the man and the lady who brought us in, so they obviously knew we were coming. And uh, looking back now, I didn't know at the time. And so um, I introduced us because manners was high on my mother's list. And so I introduced us and she said, silence, you're 1123, you're 1124, you're 1125. You will only answer to those numbers and no other numbers, only those. And that was their introduction to Golden Bridge. And I think that's enough, you know, like... You know you're in trouble. We, I knew we were in trouble. I just instinctively knew this is it. We're finished. We're gone. And we were there for five years. What was life like over those five horrendous. years? Horrendous. It, it was horrendous. I, 
I remember giving um, Christine Buckley set up the Ashling Centre in, in around 1999 when the Taoiseach Bertie apologised on behalf of the state for the cruelty inflicted upon former residents, not just of Golden Bridge, but of Artane and Blatterfrack. And there were every nightmare you ever saw on a film where children are locked away. Like, for instance, there was a film with Mary Murray and it was it was horrendous to watch. It really was because it showed a little slice of what it was like. Um, the first night uh, they formed a, a line in the kitchen of me and my sisters and all the other new crew that were brought in. And it was an assembly line, so... So the first one I went to, I got my head shaved with, you know, a big shaver, you know, over your head. And uh, and then I was passed on to somebody else who who put washed me with carbolic soap, which red soap is for cleaning floors and burned the eyes out of you. And then you're brought forward then to be dried with a rough towel. And then DDT powder is thrown all over you. And then you're sent with a nightdress on you, whether you're a boy or a girl. They just put it like a, an overall. It wasn't, wasn't. A, it was like hard linen mm. uh, from. Say it was the same type of cloth as a tablecloth that's been laundered and starched, so it wasn't comfortable. Mm. And then we were brought into a kitchen, and we were given a dollop of gruel. And when I went to see the film Oliver, it was exactly like that. And people thought, when I gave interviews later on, people thought that couldn't have happened. That there's no way that could have happened, but the Rhyme report and uh, the two other reports, uh, the Murphy report especially and the Rhyme report, proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that children were used as slave labour in Golden Bridge, and that's us. So we were lucky; we weren't sent to. In my bag, there's a, a, a pair of rosary beads, and I carry them with me everywhere, and I really shouldn't, because. In the rosary bead room, there were children from five years of age upwards with their fingers bleeding as they had put wire through little beads. And these, we were making rosary beads. I was, I, I escaped it. I was put to do other details. But their fingers would be bleeding because you had to twist it with a little pliers and you had to cut it and it had to be sanded. And then they'd put them in a box and they'd be sold. It's the hypocrisy of it. It just upsets me because I'm very spiritual and um, I've always believed in God and when I was asked in an interview, how do you still believe in God when all of that happened to you? And I said, I believe in God because God didn't do that to me. Human beings did that to me who should have known better. Uh, the sisters of mercy should have had mercy, but they had no mercy. So the five years that we spent in, in Golden Bridge was the most horrendous five years of my life and even the three years homelessness it was nothing compared to it nothing because the three years of homelessness I could go where I want I could walk where I want I could sleep where I want and I could hide where I wanted under bridges I hid my heart is breaking for you and your sisters I can't even begin to imagine what that was like for you and as you are speaking, I'm imagining my two little girls and the thought of them being subjected to that. It breaks my heart that you actually went through that. But when you were there, 
you know, as I'm thinking of my girls, I imagine you were thinking of your mom. What had happened? Where was she? First thing I knew I had to do, because my mom was a loving person, but the the thing about uh, the cruelty was that it was every day. It was constant. It was terrifying. And I knew I had to be strong. That's it. I couldn't cry and I shouldn't cry and I wouldn't cry. No matter what they did, I wasn't crying. And so why? Because, why did you yeah. why did you not want to show them your tears? Um, because my two sisters looking up at me looked to me for strength and courage. And they were terrified, absolutely terrified. But if they saw that I was terrified, they'd have fell apart. God knows what would have happened to them. So I knew I had to be strong for them. So I used to say, Don't be worrying. Mom will get us. You know me ma. Me ma will find us. She'll get us. And we didn't know what happened to her. Nobody told us. Nobody said, by the way, your mum was sick. That's why you were brought here. But you see, that would have taken a heart. And these people were heartless. And they admitted that in the tribunals. We went to all of the tribunals. And the nuns admitted that one of them said, by way of defence, but we didn't know anything about children or rearing children. And spare the rod and spoil the child. This is in 2004. (laughs) And she still believed that. And I was looking at this nun who probably battered me, you know, because she was from the Mercy Congregation. So they didn't tell us where my mum was. And about two years in, I reckon it was about two years in, we'd never had a birthday. We never knew there was a birthday. We didn't know what day it was, week it was, year it was. So there was no way of knowing, but I reckoned it was about two years in. And one of the nuns came down. The mother superior usually sends for you. And so one of the nuns came down and she said, Mother superior wants to see 1123, 1124, 1125. So we had to stop what we were doing, follow her, go up to the, the nuns' quarters. And she was writing, as always, writing. And... um we waited and she said, um, there's some bags on that chair over there. Go into the bathroom and get dressed. And, I, and Maureen said, are we going home? She said, no, your mum has been granted a visit. We were like, this is amazing. This is, she's going to save us because this is the moment we've waited for. So we went into the bathroom. We changed into the clothes that we came in in. Like, we weren't in the clothes that we came in. And they didn't fit me. <laughs> like, well, put them on anyway. And um, so uh, we went back to the, the Mother Superior and she brought us down. She said, follow me. And she had a bell. And she had, I, I noticed this the first day, but I was just thinking back on it. She had a rosary beads, huge rosary beads that went down past our knees with a big cross on it. But on the other side, she had a leather strap that went all the way down past her knees. So she had Jesus crucified for our sins on one side and the implements of her torture on the other side. And how she slept that night or how she, you know, what logical mind says this man died for us and so I'm going to batter these children. I don't know. I don't know that logic anyway. So we went in, we sat in the chair, the door opened and mum came in and I straight away knew there was something wrong. 
or something. It wasn't my mom. It was my mother, but she looked like my mother, but she wasn't. She was like cowed. You know that term, cowed? She was like, it's like she was there, but she wasn't really there. And we didn't know at the time that the nuns would give them tablets, sedatives and, and things like that. And uh, so I said, Mom, get us out of here. I said it real low. Mom, get us out of here. They're killing us. Every day someone is getting battered. Every day, Mom. And she was like, I know, son. I know. I will. I will, son. I know. I'll come back up and see you again. She didn't answer the question. She went, I'll come back up and see you again. I brought you lovely presents. So she had a bow and arrow for me. And she had two dolls for Carol and Maureen. And I said, where's Gregory? We haven't seen Gregory. And she said, they're looking after Gregory just the same as they're looking after you. And I went over and I whispered in her ear. I said, ma, they're not looking after us. They're killing us, ma. And she just looked at me and she said, there and there, son. There, you're grand. I have to go. And she went. And I was like, that's it. They've done something to our brain. Or I, I didn't quite make sense of it. I couldn't. So it wasn't for another long while, probably about another year and a year and a half or something like that. And she came to visit again. And this time she was a little more like mom. And she said, I'm working on getting you out. They don't want to give you this back to me, but I have a plan and stick with me. And she said, I don't let them know that I'm getting better. She said, they have me in a nursing home, a sanatorium. So they used to send the mothers They'd cow them with tablets and send them to sanatoriums and say they were mad and they weren't able for their children. Meanwhile, they were selling the children to America, to Canada. It was a business. And I know people would find this hard to believe, but the Ryan Report proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt that the children were sold into homes, good homes in America and in Canada and in England to couples who were wealthy who couldn't have children. And I'm sure they all had great lives, but it was, for as far as I'm concerned, it was just the tip of the iceberg of what they were doing. The whole kit and caboodle of the government, I said this in my book, that the government were hand in velvet glove with the, with the religious orders. The religious orders, so what happened was a child didn't go to school the school inspector would report the child as non-attending school and uh, that child would be taken, brought to Kilmainham Jail, Kilmainham Jail, Kilmainham Court. I stood in the dock in Kilmainham Court at, just before my mum got sick and all that. So I stood in that dock as a little child, charged with non-attendance at school. And only for my mother, who was compass mentis at the time, it was before she had her episodes. We we didn't know that. What happened was she got sick. She had bronchial pneumonia and emphysema. And she was sent to a hospital where it took months for her to recover. Then she was sent to Linden, which is a, a nursery, nursing home. And from there, she was sent to a sanatorium. And so that was the trajectory of what happened to most mothers, single mothers, at the time, were sent like that into sanatoriums where some of them became mad and never got out. And the children were sold. And if they weren't sold, they were used as slaves to make rosary beads. 
and to make all the things that the nuns sold. And so, so, so your mom, she came back after three and a half years. She came back and boy, did she come back. It was like a nightmare until that day where my mom came to visit. And I said to Maureen and Carol, she's not going to get us out. She's not able to get us out. They're too strong and they've got her. And so Maureen said, but she looked like herself the last time. She will get us out. I said, yeah, she could, but I didn't want them to build a house up. Mm, but, but she did. She but came she back. did. She came in and the nun was sitting there and my mum told she did that to us to keep quiet and let her do the talking. So so she uh, waited until she was finished and she said, um, I want my children back. I've asked a thousand times every year for my children back. And she said, uh, now I didn't remember the exact way she said it, but in conversations with my mother, which were sparse in the years after that, she didn't want to talk about it. But when I became an adult, I wanted to know. I said, I do know what you said, but I can't remember what she said. She said, you're not a fit mother to rare children. And so we will give your children to those mothers who are well able to look after children. And that's not you. You're not able for that. And my mother said, I've asked you nicely. And she said, I won't ask you again. I want my children. And she picked up a bell to ring it. And she said, I'll get the guards. They'll get rid of you. And so she took the bell, walked out of the room, rang the bell. And my mother walked over to the desk. I can see her. I, I didn't know what she was doing. I was like, what's she doing? What, what is she? Come to us. Tell, hold us. Strength. Keep, give us strength, you know. And she walked over to the desks and she looked through some of the envelopes and she put two of the envelopes in our... She used to have a bib. It was like a, a dealer's pocket. So dealer... Anyone sold flowers back then, we called it dealer. When, when that name had a respectability about it. If you're a dealer, you're hardworking. Nowadays, it has a different connotation. So she had a dealer's pocket and she put the two envelopes in the pocket and the nun came back and she said, remove this woman from this premises. And uh, so she had two nuns who were going to bring us out. So the phone was there and she went over to the phone. She said, now either you leave with the two nuns or I ring the guards. And my mum said, ring the guards and tell them where you're selling children to Canada, to America. And she said, and I will go straight to the Irish press, the Irish Independent, the Irish Times. I'll go to every single newspaper unless you give me back my children now. And she just didn't know what to say. And she said, I will call the guards. She said, call them. I'll wait for them. And there was a bit of an argument between them. And eventually... She said, one, one, two, three, one, one, two, four, and one, one, two, four. And my mother said, they have names. And she said, I'd hardly call Glenn and Maureen and Carol names. They're film stars' names. And she said, well, at least I didn't give them numbers like the Nazis. And she just took, took us and brought us out. And the sun was beaming. And it was just, it was like Narnia. You go through the wardrobe and you go out and there's Narnia. And that was it. So we we all never spoke about it. We all decided not to speak about it. So it wasn't my dad came back. Um, about a year or so later, he came back and she took him back. And I think they all agreed we'll never speak about it ever again. So 
uh, dad came back and uh, he got a job straight away and he was off the drink. And dad off the drink was for us. Un, un, we never knew dad not to drink. So he got a job in the in the posts and telegraphs and uh, he was in a compressor man. So he was he wasn't a huge man, but he was strong and fit and he was very well read and very educated. And so my mother wasn't, you know, but yet she was clever. And so he got that job and we all got back together again. And it was just for us, even though sometimes we we'd be hungry because uh, he went back on the drink after a few months, six months or so. But then he started to get it together and we'd have we'd have dinner most of the time. And uh, so we we entered into a phase where we just were so happy to be home that we didn't care what went wrong or how it went wrong. And of course, there were fights because of money that he was spending on drinking and, and stuff like that. But we would have had fights every day of the week. We didn't. But we would have put up with fights every day of the week just to be home. Yeah. And so it taught us the value of home, the mm-hmm. value of family, which I keep to this day. I mean, that's how I met Mary. I, I, I reckoned I'd swanned around the world long enough. I left Ireland when I was only 18 and I went to work as a salesman in West Germany. And I worked all over West Germany, all the way down as far as the, past the Black Forest uh, down to the borders of Czechoslovakia. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time to be a young man and learning about the world. And uh, so I came back and I got a job here as a salesman here. And so I met Mary uh, in the teacher's club when Abba were singing Waterloo. Mm-hmm. I asked her to dance and um, we went out on dates and then we fell in love. And it was one of those things that um, Mary got pregnant and it, back then, that was the worst possible thing that could have happened. So we went to see the priest, the local priest, to get the bands read. And we were thinking, okay, she's three months pregnant. We'll try and get married real quick. And then she'll have a baby. But, you know, it, it won't be out of wedlock um, because Mary lived with her aunt and her maiden aunt uh, because her mother died when Mary was only three months old. Her mother died shortly after giving birth to her. So she never knew her mother. And so um, she, her aunt was like old fashioned. You have to get married. You have to get married. So uh, we went around to the priest and he was, it was my first dealing with the clergy since Goldenbridge. Mm-hmm. And he didn't disappoint. He was self-important. He was domineering. And I wouldn't allow it. I wasn't having it. And he took up a packet of cigarettes and he tapped a cigarette. Didn't even offer me one. No, I did smoke at the time. And he tapped the cigarette and he said, so your initials is Gigi. I believe they called you that. I said, yeah. So do you back the Gigi's? And I had given up the cigarettes about three months before that. I said, no, I don't back the horses. And I don't smoke anymore. I don't have any filthy habits. And so he put the packet back down. He said, there will be no white. She will not be allowed to wear white. And I said, um, okay, so that's the law. He said, that's the Catholic Church's religion. And if you want to get married in the Catholic Church, she can't wear white. And I said, okay, any objection to me wearing white? And he was like, don't be ridiculous. Serge blue is what men wear. I said, well, tell that to John Travolta. I said, 
He wears a white suit. I'm going to wear a white suit. There should be white at this wedding, and there will be. And I did. <laughs> so you got married, you went on to have a family. We got married, and within six, within six months, I, I was very determined, very a real go-getter, you know? Yeah. So we were living in Dolphin House in Mary's aunt's flat. It's tiny, and it was me, Mary, and a little baby, Cheryl. And so I went in, and I haunted Dublin Corporation until they gave me a house in Clondalkin. And Cheryl had our first Christmas in a house. I was the only one in the whole family that had got a house. It was a three-bedroom house, a semi-detached house in Clondalkin. And we were like, this is heaven. Mm. <laughs> From a tiny little flat to, to yeah. that. I was selling on stalls because of my mother's uh, training, kind of honed me craft as a, as a, as, and the salesman as well. So I had a few stalls in Liberty Market and they were very successful. Liberty Market was in Meat Street in uh, up in the Liberties, the heart of the Liberties. Uh, Imelda May told me that she used to go into my shop, so she, she did. I met her on the Brendan O'Connor show, and she said to me, I used to go into your shop with me dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, thanks for reminding me how old I am. <laughs> she said, oh, we loved it because my dad was into lion dancing. She said, he's a looper. So they had, we had... I opened up a shop in, in Meat Street and we had line dancing clothes, you know, so we had the leather waistcoats, the cowboy hats, uh, all the paraphernalia. And then we had down, it was a big shop. So we had ladies fashions on one side, gents fashion on the other side and down the back for the kids, accessories, uh, bracelets and hairbands and stuff. So my two daughters would come from college. We had another girl called Karen. So we'd share and Karen. And they were coming from Collinstone College into Mead Street to serve on the counter and, and to become, uh, I, I said to them, one day you'll run your own shop. And I've just coming up here, passed by my daughter's shop where she works and she's in charge there, you know. So uh, it did come true. <laughs> uh, but they they loved the idea of of working in the shop because they got to meet young guys <laughs> and they could get hairbands and bracelets and stuff. So, yeah, we had a great time. We were very successful. Then the gangsters moved in because I was really successful. And then the gangsters moved in and demanded um, an envelope every month. And I don't believe in honour amongst thieves. I don't believe in, in that at all, I believe. You go out and you work and you earn your money and you don't come to me and tell me you're a parasite and you want me to give you money. So I told them where to go and um, that didn't go down well, obviously. So they ram-raided my shop. It had steel shutters. So every time they ram-raided my shop, um, it cost me a fortune to get ring guard out to, um, it's free advertisement for them, (laughs) uh, to, to fix the shutters. And so I wasn't, I wouldn't give in. And Mary kept begging me, please give in because they're going to kill you. You know, these people don't mess. And I was like, no, I'm not giving in. My mother wouldn't give in. I'm not giving in. So uh, stubborn, mule-headed, maybe I should have gave in. I don't know. But they ram-raided it on an Easter weekend and Ringard charged me three times the amount and it virtually put me out of business. At the same time, we were under strain with the finances because of these actions. They robbed all of my leather goods, all of my stuff. It was They destroyed the shop, but they robbed all the expensive stuff. 
and three times they did that, and then on the fourth time, they crashed it on, you know, as I said, an Easter weekend, and I had to pay that. So it just put me out of business. Uh, I was sleeping in a friend's on a friend's couch because me and Marley were having stand-up arguments all the time. I was drinking a lot. Um, my way of dealing with pressure was to go to the pub at the weekend. So I'd work hard all week, and I said, typical. <laughs> typical drinker I said well I'm entitled to drink at the weekend because I work all week she said normal men work all week have a few drinks at the weekend you drink until you're completely locked there's a difference so if you're going to keep doing that you can't do it with the girls in the house and I agreed with her and I said yeah you're right I, I, I came to it I saw it I don't want it for them so I said I'll leave and she said okay fine so I was sleeping on a friend's couch and they start fighting and I said, I can't do this. So I got up at about quarter to two in the morning or thereabouts. And I walked out into the streets and it was winter. And I didn't know where to go, what to do. So I met a, a homeless man that I used to give some money to uh, called Tommy. And he uh, said to me, I'll look after you. I'll take you under my wing. And I said, be only for about six months or so. And he said, yeah, I said that 25 years ago. I was like, God. <laughs> so one year went to another year and another year and another year. And then eventually I was, I became an invisible person on the streets. My hair was like down to here. My beard was down to here. I was, I used to sit outside the John's Lane Chapel and one woman said to me, you look Jesus of Nazareth. So I said, <laughs> at least he had a stable. <laughs> I said, I always tried to keep the funny side out. Uh, but people really cared about me. I, that really surprised me. So you're on the streets. Yeah. One year leads into the other. Yeah. Do you have? Are you in contact with your with Mary with the girls? No, um, and that was that was a choice I made. I didn't want to be homeless in Clondalkin because I didn't want my daughters to be embarrassed and to see me on the streets. So I purposely went in to where I knew best, where I lived, where my mother used to come from, Dolphin House. And I purposely went in there. And uh, I was a loner. Like when Tommy had when Tommy had go off into Mount Joy for three months or six months, he'd, he'd cause a row on a chipper or something like that. He wasn't a volatile man, but he would, if somebody tried to move him, police or anything like that, he'd cause a row and he'd get six months, three months, six months. So I'd be on my own. So... Days morph into weeks, into months, and into years. And how did you spend that time? What were you doing? Mostly you spend that time uh, trying to survive uh, because you have to get through the next hour, sometimes the next five minutes. Uh, so you have to tap up. Uh, that's what the phrase is on the streets. Uh, Tommy said to me, if you don't tap up, I didn't want to tap up. He said, if you don't tap up, that's a cup. Sit outside a bank or sit outside of a supermarket. He said, if you don't tap up, you're going to starve. Because I have to tap up for me. I can't tap up for the both of us. And so even though he said that, he'd share his last chip with you. You know, he was that type of person. So tapping up is tapping holding up out is, a cup. Is begging with a cup and asking any loose change. Yeah. That's basically it. So I was lucky, I suppose, that I stood at John's Lane Chapel. And everybody got to know me by my first name. Mm. And they'd come out and put a miraculous medal around my neck. All these elderly women and elderly men 
would ask me, how are you, Glenn? I didn't see you last week. I'd frequently collapse and I'd, from malnutrition and I'd be brought into James's hospital and I'd sign myself out. And they'd say, I didn't see you last week, Glenn. Where were you? And I'd say, I got fed up with the weather and I went to Bermuda for a week. And they'd laugh, you know, mm. and say, you're incorrigible. And they'd put these medals around my neck. And consequently, I had like a rope about this thick. The medal is a blue, is a silver medal. It's like the one I have on me. I, I never go out without it. So it's one of them, but it's a blue piece of cloth, a blue piece of uh, twine around it. And um, I ended up with a rope that thick, and I still have it at home. <laughs> They're all different colors of blue on me, you know. So, um, And what was it like, like horrible. day in, day out? Horrible. Malnourished, freezing cold, yeah. no comforts, no contact with your family. What was that like? I think loneliness is is probably the worst pain that you can ever experience because three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, I'd be under the bridge at Dolphins Barn or Sewer Bridge or, or whichever one of the bridges I thought that the Barn gang weren't going to be because there were gangs going around. They'd beat you up if you had a bottle of wine or, uh, or a, 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 you know, a can or two. They'd beat you up for it. And I'd fight them for it because that was my life. I need that. I need to get better. You know, the, 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 the wine will heat you up is what you think. But alcohol leaves your pores wide open. So you, that's how I was collapsing. I was getting, you know, chills and pneumonia. I'd bronchial pneumonia. I'd emphysema from smoking broken boots, rolled up broken boots. So it was probably the loneliest time I ever had because... In Golden Bridge, I had my sisters on the streets you've known. And so the people from John's Lane, going to John's Lane, they were my only contact with the world. And so I'd, sometimes I'd go to a laneway up near Loretto College because the nuns in Loretto would be up at about five o'clock baking bread. And so outside their window in Loretto, they had a bench and it was for homeless people. So if you sat on the bench, they'd see you through the window. They'd make a cup of tea and a sandwich and just put it out and say, good morning, God bless you, and go in. So I'd sleep in the laneway, and I remember I'd be looking up at the stars and just praying, uh, protect me daughters, keep them safe, protect Mary, keep them safe. So I had this kind of litany of me mother and father, bless me mother and father, and bless even though they're gone to heaven, to bless them and pray and bring them to heaven, you know. And so um, dad died in 1999, 1998, and mum died in 1999, less mm -hmm. than a year after. And so I was praying for them. So your days are spent mostly remembering your past. So any happy times that you had in your life, you talk out loud, you tell yourself, do you remember that happened? Wasn't that hilarious? And you answer yourself. So it's it's a crazy, uh, I know it sounds weird, but if you've no one to talk to, you're going to talk to yourself. And so um, I would do that and I'd go up down to John's Lane and the people would give me hugs. They'd give me hugs and they'd give me money. They'd put money in my pocket. Um, and so I just eked out, you know, that kind of life that I was, I felt that I was like a leaf in the wind. I remember thinking, 
leaves blow off the trees because you've nothing to do but look. And I was always looking up at the sky and you'd see the leaves blown. And I walked down Thomas Street one day and I said to this old man coming up, um, well, he was old to me, he was about 50. <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, um, would you have a, a cigarette, buddy? And he said, yeah, sure. And he, he gave me a cigarette and I tried to light it and I had the shakes because I hadn't drank anything. And uh, he said, you're going to set yourself on fire. Give me that. And he lit it for me. And as he lit it for me, I saw a shop. He was standing in front of a shop and a few Christmas lights in the window. I said, he's early with his Christmas lights. He said, boy. I said, <laughs> I said, sure. What's he doing with Christmas lights? He said, it's Christmas. Had no clue. Didn't know. I didn't go into town, so I didn't see lights. I was in the laneways and the alleyways. and the So you're not near where human beings can see it. You try to keep away from human beings. So the only Why? time they saw me was at the chapel. Why do you try to keep away from everybody? Because you can't tell what their intention is. I was lucky that my mother taught me on the streets to judge a person. So I had this kind of knack of knowing if somebody melt, meant me harm. I just knew. I could feel it from them. I can feel goodness from people. I can I can actually feel it like, like sunburn. Just I know that sounds weird, but it just feels like sunburn. So somebody will hug me, and I'll feel it. I'll, I'll feel that it meant that. And those who hug me that don't have any feelings for me and trying to rob me, because fellas will do that. They'll say, come here, I'll like give you a hug, buddy. And as soon as they get you in a hug, they give you a few digs. So I'll be like, no, no, don't, because I have a cold. I don't want to give you my cold. But right now, I mm. feel it from him, even though he's not. He's close to me, but he's not that close. So I can feel it. So you're all the time trying to save your life. You don't want to get beaten up. You don't want to get, you don't want to die under a laneway or a bridge uh, without somebody knowing that you're going to be there. So you try to keep out of, you try to keep out of derelict buildings because some of my friends died in derelict buildings and the rats would eat them and you wouldn't find them. Nobody would find them for years until the place is getting demolished and then the coroner will be sent for. And you hear about all of that and that happened to one of our friends. And So you're trying to all the time survive, you're trying to all the time stay alive and basically you don't think about yesterday or tomorrow, just the next five minutes, the next hour. And during that time, would you be worrying about your next meal, your next shower, how to clothe yourself? No, you wouldn't be thinking about clothes um, or a shower. Um, we used to, me and Tommy used to break the ice on the canal because it's a flowing river. So it's, it has to be pure once it's flown from the mountains, you know. So we'd wash. People would be going by and say, you'll get pneumonia because we'd be breaking the ice and washing. No, I mean, strip down and oh wash. God. You know, yeah. The cold but, of that. It was not, no, it was not to us because even when I was in rehab, I'd get up at a quarter. The breakfast wasn't served until seven o'clock in rehab. But by the time you'd get down at seven o'clock, most of the porridge would be gone because there'd be fellas down there who didn't have a shower because the heating doesn't come on till late. So I'd get up and have a cold shower. Because it wasn't, it didn't bother me. The cold water to this day, I wash and shave in cold water. It doesn't bother me. Now I'll have a shower and it'll be warm, but I'll have a wash and uh, I'll have a shave in cold water yeah. because I'm used to it. Like when you're a child and you're that size, you're on the streets. The, the ability to feel cold is 
you just get used to it. It's, I know that sounds weird, but you just get used to it. You yeah. know? So you talk, you talk about trying to protect yourself on yeah. the streets from the people that have really bad intentions. Yeah. You talk about the wonderful people who met you outside that church mm. with humanity and dignity. Yeah. Were there many times where you did experience and witness humanity in those really dark days? Yeah, I think by comparison to Golden Bridge, when I woke up in uh, rehab, it was Coon Mirror and Athoy. Coon Mirror is probably, as you know, Gaelic for Our Lady's Harbour. And so here's this guy who's grown up in an you know, had five years of hell in, in a convent. And I had been taking tablets and drinking cans when I agreed to go to to rehab. And my sister Carol, um, Lord of Mercy on her, she convinced me to go. And so a, a, a Vincent de Paul man who was visiting Carol to see how she was because she had, she'd cancer then and she'd a double mastectomy. So she had a, a nurse, a nun who used to come in, Sister Imelda, who's her friend to this day, she's nearly 90, but she comes and visits us. She drives still. And she is from the Mercy Congregation. And she looked after the sister who was in charge of us. And I won't mention the nun's name, but she was there. I forgave all them people. And the reason I forgave them all was because if I didn't forgive them, I'd become them. I'd have hatred. And there's no hatred in me. And I don't want hatred in me. I don't hate anyone this, today. I don't have any enemies that that I know of. Maybe some people hate me. I don't know. Uh, but I don't hate them. And so um, when my dad died in 1998, it was an implosion for me of everything because the shop was gone. I, I said in, in an interview one time, it was like a, it was like a country and Western song. <laughs> my life fell apart with... I'd lost my my business, I lost my dad, I lost my mom, I lost my marriage, I lost my family, and it just, there was never-ending loss, so I had to do something about it, so going to rehab was, for me, the hardest thing to do, so I did it, when I woke up sober the next morning and I saw all these statues around me, and I believe in God, um, and I believe in Jesus, Um but I don't, I don't believe that these people know what Jesus meant. Like people think, you know, when I lived in LA, they used to slag me. They used to say, Glenn gave up drink and found Jesus. I was like, no, I found Jesus when I was only a child. I prayed to him to get me out of Golden Bridge and he did. And so, uh, so I found people um, outside of John's Lane Church who were just filled with humanity. They just oozed humanity they cared they actually cared about somebody that they shouldn't have cared about i should have been the last person in the world that they should have been bugging but yet they did and that meant the world to me and that's where the turning point in my life began i was sitting at Christchurch, and somebody told me it was new year's eve i didn't know it was new year's eve but somebody told me it was new year's eve and it was, or say around about 10 o'clock or so, and it was raining, I had torn to sleet. And I was sitting on some steps down at Christchurch, 
I was just looking at everything and the people going by and they're all rushing to get home for New Year's Eve. And I was wondering about Mary and the kids and they must be grown by now. I probably wouldn't recognize them if I seen them. And because now they'd be like, you know, 18, 19, you know, and I was like, I don't know. I'd love to see them, but there's no way I'm ever going to see them. And somebody told me on the streets a few weeks before that, that my youngest girl, Karen, had had a baby. And I was just blown away. I, I, I knew I had to go and see that baby. But how was I going to go and see a baby when I looked like Jesus of Nazareth and got a big coat with a rope around it? So I said, I'll pray to the Divine Mercy and he'll open the door for me somehow. And so I did. And I, strangely enough, got this feeling, which I get today, if I if somebody asks me on Facebook, will you pray for my aunt or my uncle? Or, I do. And uh, so I prayed that something would happen. So I goes to the Coombe Hospital. I went to walk in the door and the security was out like that. And he said, come on, we can't come in here. And I said, I'm sorry, sir. I said, I know I must look a terrible sight. I said, but my daughter, Karen Gannon, had a baby. And I said, this is my first grandchild. And uh, I would give anything just to see him. I said, I'm not going to hold him or breathe on him or anything like that. So could you, could you ask the, the nun or the nurse? And he said, OK. And he said, wait there. And he walked away and he went up and he came back with a nurse. I was like flabbergasted. And he said, tell nurse O'Reilly or whatever her name was, tell nurse O'Reilly what you said to me. So I told her. And she said, Karen Gannon. I said, yeah. She said, oh, yeah, he's, he's uh, she said, his name is Tristan. He's doing okay. And he's in, uh, she said, in the incubator ward, which is upstairs. She said, follow me. I was shocked. I was literally shocked. So I went up the stairs. She said, now you stand there and there's a big window. And she went in and there's all these babies with pink covers over them and blue covers over them. And she went over and she picked up this little baby and she said, she just said the words, Tristan, like that. And she held them up. And I just walked away and said, now I can get a smack of a bus or a car. I don't care because to me, that was the greatest thing of all. And I've it just... I went out into the freezing cold night and I just said, my my whole life is made now. I can die now. So I went up to Christchurch and I was sitting there looking at the sky, listening to people chatting and going by and thinking about this mir- miracle of a little, a little boy. And a couple walked by me and I noticed them walking by me and I always waved to everyone. I would wave and say hello. And, and so um, she stopped, the girl, and she was only about 25 or something like that. And she came back up the hill to me. And she said, she just knelt down in front of me. It was like an angel just dropping out of heaven. Uh, she had blonde hair and blue eyes. And she was only about 28. And she liked my Karen. And um, I thought it was Karen, but it wasn't. And she said, hello, what's your name? And I was thinking, and she said, you don't know your name? <laughs> I said, on the streets, nobody calls you by your name. And she said, well, what's your name? What's your nickname on the streets? And I said, Gigi. And she said, okay, Gigi, what would make you happy? I said, I'm happy now. I said, and I told her about my grandson and going to the hospital. And she said to me, that's wonderful. And I said, look, I think your boyfriend's a bit fed up. I said, he's freezing down there. He's pacing up and down and looking at me with daggers. And she said an expletive, which I won't 
pronounce, but it's four letters. <laughs> she said, F him. She went back down and she got two cans and a small bottle of whiskey and cigarettes. And she came back up and she put them in my pocket and she said, now are you happy? I said, I was happy before you gave them to me. I said, I was happy that you said hello to me. And she said, okay, there, there it is for you. She said, look, she said, I'm going off. We're going to a party. She said, why don't you go home? And I was like, <laughs> I just laughed. I said, I haven't got a home. And she said, you do have a home. This 20-odd-year-old girl became the most intelligent person in the whole world. And she said, somewhere out there, somebody loves you. Somebody is thinking about you. Somebody cares about you. Go home. And she just walked away. And I just sat there and I thought, and I said, I can't go home, can I? And then I couldn't think of a reason not to go home. And then I said, well, I can't go home if I drink. But yet I have drink and I don't want to give up to drink. Make your choice. That's what I said. Make your choice, Glenn. If you drink, you're going to die on the streets and you'll never see that jump like grow. So I went up to my friends who were, they, they were up a little bit further near Robert Emmett's area. And I gave them the bag of cans and the, the whiskey. And I gave them the cigarettes and I just took a few over. And I said, they said, where are you going? I said, I'm going home. And they all broke their heart laughing. And then when I, they saw I was serious, they were like, then some of them started crying because we're really close. You look after each other. And um, so I got on the 78A bus, which used to go to Roller Avenue in Clondalkin. I parted it like the Red Sea. So I walked down the back of the other, <laughs> <laughs> opened windows and everything and like looked everywhere except at me, but I didn't care. I was going home. And so I got to the, the house and I could see the lights on the tree. I could see people moving inside. And I was like, I can't just knock the door. I can't just knock the door. And then I heard a baby crying. I said, I have to knock the door. That's my grandson. So I knocked the door and Karen came out and she said, hello, yes, um, can I help you? And I said, how are you, Karen? And she said, Dad, is that you? I said, yeah. She said, come in. And she brought me in. She just went and she, she said, I have a visitor. They all looked at the door and me coming in. They didn't, at first didn't recognize me, you know, like my hair was to here and my beard. And Mary said to me, She's straight. Mary's very straight. She said, are you just paying a flying visit or what's the story? I said, no. I said, um, I'm going to try and get on my feet. I'm going to go to rehab. I'm going back to rehab. I tried it and didn't work, but I'm going back. I'm going to try it. She said, well, look, you can have the back bedroom and you can get on your feet. But if you slip, you have a fall, you have to just keep going because we can't have anyone drinking here. Mary is not a drinker, you know, and neither were the girls. Can't have a drinker here, so you have to keep going. So I said, okay, I'll start from scratch. And she said, good idea. First thing you need, she said, is to get yourself started. You can stay here until you get it arranged. Oil ring, Kumara, and Siebel, they take you. And I said, okay. And so I went to Kumara. And I just—I was determined. I had seen Tristan. I—I I was determined. I was going to do it for him. And last week, um, Tristan is now 23 years of age. He's six foot two, 
and he came out to my place. I have a little place in Clondalk and, and he walked in the door and he said, how are you, Granda? And he gave me, he bent down to give me a hug. And he says, I believe you're building a greenhouse. I said, I'm trying to. He said, well, I'm here to help you. And I said, son, you're, you're busy. I said, don't be taking time out of your day. He said, sure, what else would I be doing? He said, except help him, helping my granddad build a greenhouse. So he did it in about two hours. He had her all done and dusted. And I just <sighs> thought back of when I saw him. And he was only like that size, you know. And you just say to yourself, how can there not be a God? How can people believe? How can they convince themselves that there isn't a merciful God when you see the trajectory of what should have been the end of my life? And it was really only the beginning. And it really is the beginning. Oh, Glenn, I, you've brought me to tears. What a beautiful I'm story. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean <laughs> Just the thought of the kindness of that girl and how she changed your life and the love you had for your family. Well, she's out there at the minute. I'm sorry if I upset you. I really am. <laughs> you but have us all in tears. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Um, no, you know, to for your life to have turned around by your love for that boy and for him to be such a big part of your life now. Oh, he's huge. and In, in kind of every way, you know. Um, I've got four grandchildren now. And as Mary just say, Mary's very quick, you know, she just say, he's four grandchildren, no stretch marks. <laughs> <laughs> She's a wise woman. <laughs> so, uh, but she rings me all the time and she just say, um, have you gone into any laneways lately? <laughs> so, so even on my way up here, I, I'll, I'll find a laneway, I'll find someone, you know, yeah. and uh, I'll talk to them because that girl doesn't know what she did. She has no clue what she did. And when I gave an interview on RTE one time and I told that story, um, about 400 girls wrote in and said that it was them. (laughs) (laughs) And and RTE contacted me and said, we've got these 400 people who say it was them. And I said, well, I'm sure that they did help homeless people all over Thomas Street, but unless they know the exact place, it wasn't them. And they said, well, do you know, will you remember? And I said, I know exactly where the place is. They have to tell me because it's no longer there. And so none of them did. Yeah. So uh, she did what she was meant to do. I believe we all have the power within us to change someone's life. I believe we all have that power. What an incredibly moving conversation. The beauty of Glenn's story and the kindness of strangers brought up so many emotions for me, as did his love for his family. To think one person and one suggestion of returning home could be so powerful. If only that woman knew how transformative her time with Glenn was. Perhaps one day she will. Like Glenn, so many of the clients I have worked with have experienced trauma. We hear the term trauma a lot, but what does it actually mean? And how do we know if we've experienced trauma? Let's break it down. Trauma is defined as a powerful emotional response to a distressing event. And in the words of one of my greatest teachers, Dr. Gabor Matei, trauma is the invisible force that shapes our lives as it shapes the way we live, the way we love, and the way we make sense of the world. 
Trauma is the root of our deepest wounds and unless we can work on releasing the emotional energy we carry deep inside of us due to the traumatic experiences we have undergone, we will never be free from it or get to a point where it has less of an emotional hold over us. When we consider trauma, we talk about big T traumas versus little t's. A big T trauma is distinguished as an extraordinary and significant event that leaves the person feeling powerless and possessing little control in their environment. Such events are natural disasters, sexual abuse, a really significant car accident, or witnessing a really distressing experience like someone being injured or dying. Helplessness is also a key factor in big T traumas. Acute big T trauma results from a single traumatic incident, while chronic big T trauma is the result of repeated, ongoing traumatic experiences, such as abuse or domestic abuse. When it comes to trauma, it isn't just intense and life-endangering experiences that can be traumatic, as some forms of trauma don't involve violence, death or disaster, but can still have a really significant mental health impact on the person who has experienced them. This is where little t traumas come in, as any event or situation that causes distress, fear or a sense of helplessness will qualify as a little t trauma. Example of little t traumas are the dissolvement of a parental relationship or your relationship, being repeatedly criticised or dismissed, experiencing repeated uncertainty or bullying, being in a fear-inducing situation, witnessing someone being very unwell or passing away, or the loss of a job or financial worries. While these incidents don't typically threaten the safety of the person experiencing them, they can create huge discomfort, fear and a feeling of having no control over one's life, all of which can feel deeply traumatic for the person going through the experience. Throughout my conversation with Glenn, I picked up on some of the subtle nuances of his story that hint of his traumatic background. His distrust of people, his hypervigilance, his numbing his flashbacks and emotions through using substances. Other symptoms you may experience if you have a history of trauma are nightmares, distressing memories, feeling to blame or like you are a bad person, a sense of hopelessness or helplessness, feeling detached and disconnected both from yourself and others, difficulty experiencing positive effect or feeling continuously numb, heightened startle response, difficulty sleeping or feeling able to concentrate or relax, irritability or experiencing a sense of guilt or shame. And here is something really interesting about trauma. When someone experiences a traumatic event, they often find ways to protect themselves to avoid feeling scared or being hurt again, or simply to avoid memories of what happened to them. This might show up in someone's life as them avoiding relationships or being in certain circumstances, or the person may really narrow down their life and their world so it feels safer and like they are more in control. Similarly, the person may avoid things like the music, people and memories that bring them back to the trauma. What's important to remember here is that the person is trying to survive the aftermath of something they found deeply distressing. Life can feel incredibly hard after experiencing a trauma, 
So if life is currently feeling very hard for you or has done so in the past, my heart goes out to you. I know what this experience feels like and it is so, so painful and can really impact your life. Further, experiencing trauma can lead us to go into survival mode to keep ourselves safe, something that can leave us feeling absolutely exhausted. When this happens, we may feel like we are experiencing constant brain fog and find it hard to focus. We may feel a constant sense of fatigue and we may feel very irritable and short-tempered. Hearing my clients speak about being in survival mode reminds me of a quote I read during my training to become a psychologist that really struck me. Trauma sticks with you, even after the terrible moment has passed. It becomes a life sentence for a crime you didn't commit. So what can you do if you think you may be experiencing trauma symptoms, particularly if they are impacting your life? As I always suggest, a visit to your GP is a really brilliant place to start. He or she will have a chat with you and assess how you're feeling and why you're feeling this way. And they should then be able to discuss treatment options with you, such as trauma therapy, something that has been found to be hugely efficacious when completed with a trauma-informed, experienced therapist. And not just that, but therapy will also offer you a space to let your guard down and to nurture yourself. Having someone there to support you and hold your hand while working through something incredibly painful is very healing. Life doesn't have to feel this way forever. So if you are struggling, please, please reach out to somebody. Help is available. Speaking of help... I will link a really brilliant book for you in the show notes of today's episode, which I recommend to all of my clients who've experienced trauma, whether big T or small t. It's one of my favourite books, and if you can do one thing for yourself this week, let it be ordering it and diving in. Thank you so much for listening to Unspoken with me, Dr. Clodagh Campbell, the wellness psychologist. Be sure to like, subscribe and follow me at The Wellness Psychologist on Instagram if you'd like to hear more. If you identified with this topic, make sure to check out the show notes where I've listed related resources for you. I hope you find them beneficial. Today's podcast is very proudly sponsored by my absolute favourite Irish skincare brand, Ella and Joe Cosmetics. With formulas that are powered by plants and backed by science, Ella and Joe are dedicated to creating high-quality, luxurious skincare products that actually deliver results and that create magic moments in your day. Whether your skin is dry, dull, or just in need of a pick-me-up, the Ella and Joe range will put the joy back into your skincare routine. Find your skin confidence again by shopping Ella and Joe's beautiful products on ellaandjoe.ie using discount code UNSPOKEN for 15% off. Thank you.